to the Military Psychology Podcast Network, the Society for Military Psychology, Division 19 of the American Psychological Association, is producing several series applying psychological principles in military settings. We'll feature topics including diversity, consulting, behavioral health in the military and specialty areas, including operational aviation psychology. We address the question, what is military psychology? And answer it a number of ways. Follow the Society for Military Psychology at www.militarypsych.org. This episode is brought to you by Grid Energy Solutions, LLC, striving to enhance the resiliency and network recovery capabilities of the nation's electric power grid. Grid Energy's mission is to facilitate the restoration of the American electric power grid in the event of catastrophic failures resulting from natural events or human actions. For more information, please inquire at contact at grid-energy.com. Welcome back to our listeners. My name is Captain Tracy Began. I'm an Army psychologist currently serving in the 25th CAB, and I'm excited to have joined me today Lieutenant Colonel Retired Wendy Perry. She served on active duty for a number of years, retiring from active duty service, where she served as an executive nurse and managed uh, a number of organizations in various uh, hospital settings, as well as various organizations in the Army serving as a leader. Currently, she is working as a consultant to leaders and organizations to help develop their business team and to help develop their leadership skills and to help their organizations really be the best versions of themselves and help to develop uh, talent management within their organizations. So thank you so much, Ms. Perry, for joining us. We're so excited to have you and get to glean from all of your experiences. Well, thank you for having me. And hopefully I share something that will be helpful and insightful and useful and practical. Uh, let's see what, what we can do. <laughs> So some of the challenges that we have seen in organizations is diversity or the lack thereof of diversity of leaders within our organizations. Can you talk to our audience a little bit about why it's important to have diversity represented in our organizations, particularly in leadership positions? Yes. And so, you know, I think we can't really have that conversation without talking about SHRM, the Society for Human Resources Management, um, who's done, that organization has done so much research in that area. And they have a huge diversity and inclusion and equity effort that they spearhead, but also, again, as I was saying, referencing the research. And what we, what the research tells us is that when you have a diverse group of individuals that make up the construct of your leadership team in particular, and that's diversity based on race, that's diversity based on background, and it's and then it it is also what you hear a lot of people describe as diversity of thought, that you have a much richer group that really kind of, it stimulates conversations that you wouldn't normally have. 
and it really can drive your organization towards better successes. And so when they compared organizations that had a diverse leadership team or construct to those that did not, um, in terms of the speed of success, the effectiveness of their programs, and also just the the overall development and engagement of their employees, it, it was clear that when you have a diverse group or a diverse mix, that you achieve more, faster, and I guess overall, it's just a better organization. That's, that's my summary on that. <laughs> so as you're sharing that research, what comes to mind for me is the Johari window. And we're thinking about trying to close that, that I don't know what I don't know yes. window and, and that blind spot that we can have as individuals and as organizations. And when you bring in people that have had different experiences, that have a different viewpoint and vantage point, that window tends to get smaller. Not that it's going to disappear completely, but Mm -hmm. it gets smaller. And and so that we can cover more ground. And if you're thinking about how do I expand for businesses? How do I expand my market share? If you only have people that are like-minded or have had similar backgrounds, you're not going to be able to to reach that diverse uh, market share that maybe you're looking for. Uh, Thinking about the military, if Mm -hmm. we're looking at how do we help mentor and lead soldiers and develop leaders yes. if we're only coming from it at one angle and don't understand that whole soldier because mm-hmm. we don't have awareness of what their experiences have been? That really limits us as leaders and how yes. we can develop that organization and develop that individual leader and can often lead to frustration. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's so well said. I mean, I think in our efforts to diversify, often the early efforts really lent itself to compliance models, right? They were we were instituting programs and efforts to comply with whether it was a, a diversity initiative or an equal opportunity initiative. And an equal opportunity, certainly, when we talk about EO, the military comes to mind. And, and then you get to, well, we do that one and done annual training, and that's supposed to satisfy the requirement of having everyone have an understanding or being able to embrace what it means to have a diverse and inclusive organization. And that really doesn't necessarily do, it doesn't meet the mark on that, right? And and so how much are we compelled to really make a difference and make change? And as you mentioned, you know, when we limit ourselves to what we know, then we're really selling ourselves short. And as leaders, it is so important to be able to get beyond yourself. There is what you know, but how much more could you know when you just open up and ask and share with other people who are not like-minded? And so I hate to say get out of the box, but I mean, that's probably the best description for that. Now, some of the pushback that I've heard is in the military, there is that chain of command. So thinking more to that compliance model, right? Yes. Um, but if, and there are absolutely... If you're a soldier, if you're a military member, if somebody in that higher rank gives you an order, you need to carry that out. Yes. So we're not really talking about insubordination here. We're not talking about mm-hmm. not effective leaders who aren't decisive. What we're really talking about here is for leaders to develop their subordinates and their junior leaders to be able to lead effectively so that when those commands are given, they have the buy-in of their service members, of those military members, that they know that leader has their best interest in mind, that that leader has an understanding of what the limitations are, what the strengths are, what the areas of growth are for that particular organization. So they know when they're making those commands that they have trust in that leader 
to know the whole situation. Yes, yeah. And I, I mean, that's so well said. And, you know, we often focus and believe that leadership development is for leaders or people who hold the title or role uh, in a leadership position, right? Or the person who has the rank. But what we know to be true is that we're all leaders at every level. And in order to really foster and develop that leadership at every level, again, efforts towards professional development are key. But what are we developing when we get together? What is it that we're talking about? Are we only encouraging people to get more education? Are we only telling them that there's there's one way or these three ways are the ways that you get to be successful or that you get to climb the ladder, but we're not really exposing them to all of the possibilities. And so you're exactly right. When, you know, we're not talking about insubordination, but we are talking about more, let's say, empowerment. And I think an empowerment is a good way to, if, if you're able to embrace that term and what that really means, it is really kind of um, embracing the, the diversity. I hate to use that word again, but embracing the diversity of the gifts and the talents of everyone within your unit. And, you know, a unit is only as strong as the soldiers that are in it. And Again, as a leader, it is so important to be able to know know your people and for them to know you. And so, I, you know, I couldn't say it better than you said it. <laughs> it was good. <laughs> so I wanted to just give our audience uh, an opportunity to hear about some of your experiences as a woman of color in a leadership position and some of the challenges that you've experienced in those positions. Oh my goodness. So how far back do you want to go? (laughs) Yeah. As a black woman who served 22 years in the army, you know, I was a little sheltered because of course, as you mentioned, I I was an army nurse and as an army nurse, it's a, you know, a female majority female, I guess the population of nurses, more women than men. However, even within the nurse corps, a lot of the leadership positions eventually fell to men, which is interesting. And so for years, it was that you could start out at the very bottom and work your way up. And you could absolutely have aspirations of one day being chief of the corps or, you know, as it evolved during my time in the Surgeon General. And so it is, it's like, wow, you know, there is no ceiling here. We could all do it. But what is true about that also is that the competition is very high. And so my experiences, specifically as an African-American woman, um, are varied. And so there is what's laid out before you and the possibilities. And then there is whether or not there's an actual support system and structure there to get you there. And I think that many women, I'll just say in generation Z, Um, see it differently than us Gen Xers. And I hate to go through the whole generational thing, but it's absolutely true. As a Gen X, there's a whole lot that was laid out before us. And I think it speaks to what I just said, right? It was, you can be anything. You just have to make your mind up. You could be president one day. You know, there is no ceiling for you. And that was all great. And it inspired a lot of things. However, when you really tried to reach out and do those things, you recognize that there wasn't a lot of mentorship and there wasn't a lot of support in the process. And so you may have taken risk, and I'll speak to me, you asked me specifically, taken risk to accomplish things, but then it's like, okay, so does anyone have my back? Or where is my support? And often 
unfortunately, and I know you've heard this in the nurse corps, they say that nurses eat their young. And what happens is you get out there and, and you could be blazing, you could be a trailblazer. And there's someone there that's saying, oh, wait a minute, hold on, you're going too fast, slow down. Or that's not the way you do it, you need to do it this way. Or I already had that pegged for someone else, not for you. And in fact, that's what I was told. I remember it clearly there was an assignment. I had changed duty assignments, arrived at my new duty station. I had already been told that I was going to be in a position of leadership. I arrived, I was doing orientation, and then I was told, oh, you will not be taking that job. We're going to put you somewhere else. And so my obvious question was, well, why? (laughs) And it was, well, because that position has already, I, I already have someone else earmarked for that position. And it's like, well, you know, that's interesting because I was told, I was assured that that's what I was coming here to do. And the exact words were, that job is not available for you. Now, you know, it's interesting and it just depends on how you want to interpret that. I could tell you that at the time I interpreted it many ways, but it struck me and stuck with me that I was told specifically it was not available for me for whatever reason. And I want to brag a little bit on myself and say that I had a pretty stellar career. I definitely was fast tracking. I always had leadership positions. And so it just made sense. And it was intuitive that you put your best leaders in the best positions, right? And that's what talent management is all about. Really putting people in places where their gifts and talents and skills will not only move them forward, but will move the organization forward. At least that's what we talk about. But I experienced something different. So you you struck a nerve. I could probably talk about that all day. But I had many experiences like that, unfortunately. But you have to, despite having the experience, you can't let it derail your motivation. So I hope that answers your question. No, absolutely. And you bring up a really good point as well that something that often comes up for women and particularly for women of color is Mm -hmm. that that mental load, so to speak, and that anxiety and that questioning, is it me? Is Am I not good enough? Am I not skilled mm-hmm. enough? Is it because I'm a woman I'm being dismissed? Is it because I'm a woman of color I'm being dismissed? Yes. And even historically, the challenges of men and particularly just in general, how our systems are set up for mm-hmm. a woman of color to be in a leadership position is not something you typically see a lot. That's correct. And in fact, if you look up statistics on the percentage of CEOs that are African-American women, I can tell you that it's less than 1%. And even in businesses that are 100% African-American women-owned or minority women-owned, not not just African-American women, the percentages are less than 10%. And that seems so unlikely, but as you look at those It's how can it be and how did we get here? And so I think it's necessary to zoom out. And so, yes, you have that subset and we could talk about minority women. But when you look at women in general, it is so unequal. To this day, it remains unequal. The number of women that hold CEO positions in Fortune 500 or Fortune 100 companies is unfortunately disparate as it compares to men. And so why is that? Well, I mean, you know, a lot of people 
are familiar with a number of the books that have been released recently that say that you need to claim your seat at the table, that you need to, you know, stand up for what you believe in, that you need to, I think one of what is it, wash your face um, and, and just kind of pull yourself up. Um, one that I read recently was you are a badass. Um, it's all of this effort and all of this dialogue and all of these insights and research into how do we get women to claim rightful places but I think that we really have to also look at the infrastructure that's behind it. And I alluded to that earlier a little bit in terms of the support structure. So the positions are there and organizations historically will tell you the positions there, anyone can apply, anyone can compete. However, what happens is women have been marginalized largely due to having multiple roles. So the woman who may also be a wife, who may also be a mom, has additional duties and responsibilities that sometimes prevents them from being able to overwork or work more or, or grind, as it were, in a way that is sometimes required to move yourself ahead, especially in, in a corporate environment. So I could go on with that. But what I want to say is that where you have men who are competing, often their support system is a wife or a partner of some sort that is taking care of family and taking care of them. So their primary focus and their priority focus is on going to work and doing a great job. And then you have a woman who may be equally competent and may be equally capable, but is now divided between you know, her several roles as compared to the one. And if, for example, a woman chooses to have a baby, there's going to be some time that she's going to be away from work. And then even that whole dynamic. And so it pulls you out of the running, so to speak. So you could think of it as the tortoise and the hare and the, the woman could be the hare and could be way out in front in a good way though, not just kind of resting on her laurels and, and knowing she has it in the bag, but get to a point where something takes her out of the game for a period of time. And during that time, the slower turtle gets to catch up and ultimately move past because something had taken her out of the race. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. There's definitely that opportunity cost. When you look at a woman having to make that decision of, do I want to have a family? Yes. What are my career aspirations? And oftentimes they do not match because of the time commitment, particularly in the military. There are definitely some more Mm -hmm. demanding roles. Doesn't mean it's impossible, but there's going to be an opportunity cost. There is a trade-off with the time you'll be able to spend with your family and raising your child to make sure that, hey, they know that I'm their mom and not just somebody in a picture, right? Yes, yes. (laughs) And wait, hey, you're not deployed. You're just working really long hours. And I know you tuck me in and drop me off at daycare. And that's about the extent of my contact with you. Yes. Which is challenging and it's a trade-off, right? And, and, and so mm-hmm. having those mentors in those leadership positions that can help guide these junior leaders in the military who are mothers, young mothers, yes. um, is challenging to find. And, yeah, and it, the trade-off mm-hmm. is often you can't have it all. Yes. You have to, or you have to lean in more and you have yes. to make a choice. But just like you said, that support system. And I often think about single moms mm-hmm. in the military and the challenges mm-hmm. that they have, just as you were discussing that, yes. that trade-off. And, and just like you said, well, the positions are there, mm-hmm. but just like the tortoise and the hare, like you're doing all your fast tracking, you're doing all these <laughs> things. And then 
oh wait, one of these other roles that I have is competing for my time and we don't have infinite time. We don't have infinite resources. So how yes. do we delegate those? Yes, yes. And all great points. And the thing about it is, especially in the military, I, I, would, I was a recruiter for a period of time. And, I, and before I was a recruiter, just as an army nurse, I was asked by a recruiting team to come and speak to college students about why they maybe should choose the army or the military as a career. And I remember one young lady asked, you know, well, what kind of mother would leave their child willingly or voluntarily and, you know, to go fight a war? And again, clearly that struck me because it stayed with me for over, that's been like 30 years now, you know, what kind of mother would do that? And so when you talk about the type of guilt that some of us experienced. And so my response to her though, was that the kind of mother that would do that is someone who wants their children to know that you finish what you start, that you follow up on your commitments, that you you know, are true to your word and that when you choose a life of service, that it's because it's for something bigger than yourself. And of course, you know, at the time, interestingly, I didn't have any children. <laughs> But, but I knew, you know, and I understood the importance of it, having to make a decision to have children too. So to be married and be dual military and have children and know that there's always the potential for deployment of you or you and your spouse. How do you prioritize family in a situation like that? And, and what I'll say is, you know, we often talk about circling the wagons. The beauty of the military is that it really is a family, that there are people around you that support you, even if they're not in your chain of command. And so you mentioned chain of command. And I think if there's anything that I want everyone to know is that they're really not alone, even though they may feel that they are. There are so many groups and so many opportunities. And now even on Facebook or Instagram, there's so many support groups for women in the military, for women who have experienced it, have gone through it, have felt the guilt or have made similar decisions or choices that are willing to share their experiences and to encourage, empower, and support women who are currently doing it. And that is so helpful to know, especially for our audience who might feel they're alone or, or might be in that position where they're deciding, okay, do I want a family and stay in or do I get out? Or, you know, yes. what does that look like for me for my aspirations, right? Yes. And, yes. and that can be so challenging to make that choice and, and when you feel you're alone and, and that mom guilt, oh, that is real. Oh, it's real. Yeah. <laughs> it's <so> real. <laughs> And, and, you know, I, and I think particularly in this age of social media, when you see all the birthday parties and the Pinterest and, and you're like, I am lucky if I can get something in the Instapot before I leave. And, you know, thank you, Instapot, for cutting down my crock pot cooking time. <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, the Instapot is the savior of us all, isn't it? I mean, helping <laughs> us eat better and, and do it quickly. And it's not a microwave. <laughs> solution. Um, yeah, you know, you also mentioned something about having it all. And I recall another conversation with the then chief of the nurse, Army Nurse Corps. And I won't say the name because she's retired and so am I. So I don't know that that's as relevant. But as a young officer at a professional development event, I asked the question about balancing family, you know, marriage and family, along with having a successful career in the military. And her response was, that there can only be one queen bee 
And I thought that was interesting. And she also said that she had been married to her husband for more than seven years and had only spent a combined total of one month with him. And that was some of what was required in order for her to reach the level that she had reached. And so while I was a little disheartened by the conversation, again, as many things have, that stuck with me. And it set me on a course of actually being more determined to try to be successful at it. So you might assume that I'd say, oh, okay, forget it. It's just not possible or it's only possible for a few. But it really did set me on a course of trying to make it happen. So I did not make a decision not to have children because it was too hard. I decided to go ahead and do it to see if we could do it differently. And yeah, it was tough. It was really tough. And it is whether you're in the military or not. It is challenging to successfully raise a family and have a thriving marriage and also have a thriving career. And that just brings me to our current situation with the pandemic. The stressors are even greater with the majority of kids being stay-at-home parents Mm -hmm. and having to telework. And on top of juggling, how do I homeschool my kids? I am not a teacher. I don't even know how to log on to their portal. How do I even get them signed in for attendance in the morning? and juggle my morning meeting and juggle the coffee and wait, I'm still in my pajama pants. I need to turn off my videos. Nobody sees that. Yes. Well, the one thing I can say is that we were all in the collective struggle together. It impacted the world. And we all really tried to figure out the best ways to make it happen, whether it was working from home or learning from home, sharing a space that you didn't anticipate and trying to for women, trying to keep it all together so that the kids didn't feel the stress of it and so that everyone could stay encouraged about what was to come. Across the country, a lot of families are dealing with the uncertainty of whether or not their children will be returning to school because even though it hit us hard, we all anticipated that we would be almost back to normal at this point and we still aren't. And so there is a lot to juggle and and it is a challenge. But I was saying to my now 20-year-old daughter, one of them last night, that it's okay that right now things suck. (laughs) And it's okay to, to admit that they do. It is okay to grieve that this is not the ideal scenario that we anticipated, but our hope is in the future, that we have to continue to plan and we have to continue to expect that tomorrow would be better than today and that our future is holding something really great for us. And so it's easy to get disheartened and discontented, but I'd like to encourage people to try to stay hopeful and look for solutions that are going to get them where they want to go. That is such great advice and not just for the current pandemic, but I think about women that I see on a forum that I'm a part of that are just struggling with their current assignment or a current Mm -hmm. boss. And that's one great thing about the military is things are always changing, always dynamic. But to have that hope and to reach out and know that there is support. So thinking about that, Mm -hmm. what was your experience of being able to connect with mentors? Yes. So when I was on active duty, the Army Nurse Corps tried to mandate a mentorship program. It failed horribly (laughs) Um, for a number of reasons. And I'll say this, that mentor, mentee, or protege, however you want to refer to it, that relationship really needs to be one that's organic and that, that really evolves out of a shared commitment 
to the process. And so some of my best mentors, I had two while I was on active duty, they were both men and they took a concerted interest and made a concerted effort to encouraging me and inspiring me. And they served as a leadership pipeline. And I think that leadership pipeline is what's key. As I mentioned that in the nurse corps, that they, they are known for eating their young, a leadership pipeline is necessary. And most people don't have that. And what do I mean by that? It is someone that really is in your same field or industry that has gone, that goes before you or is in the roles that you would like to someday be in that can tell you how to avoid those landmines and how to identify opportunities. And, you know, I think I I read something that said, you know, a friend loves you at all times, but a mentor loves you too much to let you stay the way that you are. And that's so true. And, you know, one of those two men, you know, as soon as I would achieve something, he'd call me and and he'd say, that's great, but what's next? (laughs) And I'm like, man, can I just sit in this for a second? And I'm like, no. (laughs) And the other always and constantly, and he was not a nurse, would challenge me to think beyond the nurse school because I did have some toxic leaders. And, you know, admittedly, I had people who did not have my success as part of, you know, it was just not in their, their best interest. And that's unfortunate, but it's true. I mean, you know, I, I want to be as honest as I can, but that's why I emphasize that you can go beyond your chain of command. You can go beyond your core or your discipline. There are so many people out there who really take it to heart that they want to be able to help other people, that they are in this for that purpose. And so it's refreshing when you come across those people. When you try to force a mentorship, it rarely works because it does take mutual commitment and mutual understanding to make it work successfully. That is such a great point that you bring up as far as the diversity of mentors. I know oftentimes for me, I generally want to gravitate towards female mentors Mm -hmm. because that's my comfort level. And I have talked to colleagues and junior psychologists who are like, well, I want someone who matches my gender, matches my ethnicity, matches my religious background, you know, somebody that's just like them. And that's valuable, right? There's value in that and being able to see someone who is like me, giving Mm -hmm. me hope, giving me someone to aspire to be like that. That looks like me and kind of encourages me. Yes, I can do that too. But there's also that value, just as you were saying of that somebody seeing something different and being able to push you in that direction to grow and to develop as a leader. And that is so important to have that diversity in your mentorship, just in my experience. And just as you were sharing, it seems like that's also something that you valued is having that diversity in mentors. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you can have as many mentors as you want. You know, I had two that stand out. There were several others that also mentored me but we were not in in, an actual mentoring relationship. And so there's a difference in that. And and I'll I'll say it's maybe nuanced. There are people who are probably in your your discipline who look like you, who go before you, who are great representatives and model for you where you'd like to aspire to be. And those people may drop nuggets. It may be a keynote speaker. It may be someone that comes to visit for a professional development event or a day. And they say things that inspire us and they motivate us, but they're not necessarily there for the long term to actually mentor us as we take those steps. So there are people who serve as a mentor, as it were, and they give you advice 
And it's good to have those. You should have many of those. But when I speak to a true mentoring relationship, really having someone that, you know, when you can't talk to anyone else, you could call them up. There probably should be one or two. The value of having someone that does not look like you or is not necessarily in your field is that there, you only know what you know. And you said that at the beginning. And so when you limit yourself to the knowledge base and the, the knowledge within that same area, arena, and line, then you're limiting yourself. I mean, you know, I can say when you limit yourself, you limit yourself, but that's exactly what happens. And so, you know, having someone who was not a nurse corps officer, you know, look at my support forms and my aspirations and my goals and say, you know, well, you know that you're competing with everyone. <laughs> you're not just competing with nurses. And I'm like, wow. <laughs> I never thought of it quite that way before until you say it that way. And that's exactly true. We get into the mindset that we're only competing with the people around us when in actuality, we're competing across the board with everyone. And I think when you know that you're competing with everyone, that you want to create a team that's going to prepare you to compete with everyone. And so that's why having a diverse team behind you to push you is so important. And so of the two mentors that I mentioned, one was an African-American male and one was a white male. They helped get me through my 22 years. So one picked me up right at about 10 years and carried me forward. And the other one at about the 12-year mark and carried me forward from there. And they stayed with me the entire time on and through retirement. And I'm still in contact with them to this day. So it's just an awesome relationship that I'm thankful that I had. So speaking to our male listeners... Mm -hmm. What did your mentors do as males that really made an impact in your relationship in that mentoring process? Yeah, good point. It's a, <laughs> you have to be ready for it, right? You have to be, and, and I'll say that they navigated it well, because we often look at that male-female relationship as a very delicate relationship, and it is. And so you have to be clear on both sides of it, of what it is and defining it for what it is. That's one thing. Define it as a clear mentorship relationship and establish boundaries around that. Because when you are in a relationship with someone and you're trusting them and you're sharing things and you're confiding in them, you have to be very careful about how that proceeds. And so I don't want to miss an opportunity to just kind of throw that caution in there. But it, our relationship was clear. That's the one thing. So number one, make sure the relationship is clear. Secondly, you have to know that you are mutually committed to it. And so it's not just that you're dragging someone down or that you, as the mentor, make them feel like they're a drag on you. They were always willing to be available. They were always willing for me to contact them about anything and they always made time for it. And so I would say as a potential mentor, you know, you want to make sure that you have the time to dedicate to the process. And if you don't and you can't do it, you know, to the benefit of the person that you're mentoring, then it's not something you should enter into. So first, you know, clearly define it. Secondly, make sure that you have time to commit to it. And then one of the things that they did for me was they never really made gender a thing. And so it wasn't, well, do this because you're a woman or you can't do this because you're a woman. It was really looking at what it was that I was trying to do and just working with me to accomplish it. So I think that's important. When we make gender a thing, we probably, just like you and I 
spoke about at the beginning, we're limiting ourselves, right? So we're, we are saying that the diversity only falls within two gender lanes. And so you could be successful as a woman, but does that mean that you're successful overall, for example? And so I think it's important that we don't, or you advice to men, <laughs> that you don't try to coach or develop someone to be the best woman they could be. It should just be that you're trying to coach or develop them to be the best they can be, period. So I think that's probably covers it. I mean, that's what they did for me and it turned out pretty great. Um, there's some, some, probably some other things, but I think that's a start. Does that answer your question? Definitely, because I, I think there is, just like you said, there's that delicate relationship mm-hmm. that I think... And at least what I've experienced and what I've observed is that men might be a little tentative in engaging or initiating. They might see a junior leader who has great leadership potential, but they might not engage in that or pursue that mentoring relationship because of the perception, is there something more going on? And particularly in the military, perception is everything. Yes. And which is unfortunate. And so Mm -hmm. you're saying, hey, don't let that be a barrier. You're a leader be a leader, be a mentor to everyone in your formation or Mm -hmm. someone you even see outside of your formation. If you see that potential and they're willing to seek that mentoring relationship out, be willing to do that. The other thing you talked about too is balancing. Okay, when does that happen? So men Mm -hmm. could typically go and, hey, after work, we're going to meet for drinks or go meet for coffee after work where the woman typically has the additional duties of who am I picking up from childcare? Who do I need to Mm -hmm. get to after school activities and splitting that responsibility of household duties, family duties, where the men typically can, like you said, have that support from their spouse Mm -hmm. who is fulfilling that, but women don't necessarily have that both ways. Some are fortunate to have that. And and there are some spouses who are very much about, you know, equality and and splitting up Mm -hmm. and and they don't look at it as I'm babysitting my kids, you know, they're like, hey, I'm a parent too. This is my responsibility. (laughs) Yes, yes. Uh, Or or helping out around the house. Like, no, this is our home that we are collectively taking care of. So that is wonderful and and, uh, (laughs) raising their sons to be that as well. Yes. But there is that challenge of that perception of what else is going on. So just like you said, being clear about what the relationship is Mm -hmm. and moving forward in that is so important and defining that. And oftentimes, I think just society in general is uncomfortable with that notion of men mentoring women. But then the opposite as well is Mm -hmm. women mentoring men. Have you had that experience? Like you said, in the nurse corps, it's it's very Mm -hmm. female dominated. But have you Mm -hmm. had that opportunity to mentor men? Yes, yes. And so I've been a mentor to many. And a few, I will say that I did and still actively mentor three men. And, you know, even the evolution of those relationships, right? And so it just turns out that those men were army nurses um, and in the army nurse corps. And because of the leadership roles I've had, so I was, you know, a recruiter for some time. I mentioned that, but I also taught in several nursing programs. And then I was the chief of hospital education and training. And then I was the deputy commander for orthopedic services. And so, you know, in those roles, you're going to have people who are subordinate to you or, you know, young officers or junior officers who are trying to figure out how to be successful. 
And so there is who you are and then there's what you do. And so by virtue of what I did, it put me in a position to be able to be a resource and provide guidance and for people to seek me out as a mentor. And so I was happy to do it. And so when I speak about being clear about the relationship and establishing the boundaries, I really can't emphasize that enough because you know we know that everyone, when I say we know, most people want to be successful at what they do. And many people want to know how they do it faster and smarter, more efficient, more effective. And so, you know, when you're able to share knowledge, share experience, and then provide guidance, it really is unique to the person that you're working with. You know, that mentor-protege, mentor-mentee relationship is a unique relationship. You know, the guidance, you can give general guidance to a group of people but having a mentor gives you the specific guidance that is carved out for you. And so I've had some successful relationships in, in that way. Of course, I mentor far more women than men and not all nurses. And it always surprises me. Well, I say it doesn't surprise me. It always makes me feel good when I get a text message or a phone call or a direct message about something. And I had a reality check when someone was asking me about Bolick. And I'm like, man, I have to stay on top of whatever it is now called. You know, once you retire, things change. And so when the questions come in, it's like, help me understand so I can give you context. And owning that there's a limitation to our knowledge. And so when you seek out a mentor, you know, you may have to have mentors that are at different levels and in terms of currency and knowledge in different places. And so there's someone, you know, sure, I could call up an old chief of the Army Nurse Corps and get some great advice, but he or she would not be able to tell me what someone who's in it right now is doing. So when you diversify, you also want to consider it from that perspective as well. So not just men and women and not just in your particular industry or your line or your discipline, but also, you know, how old they are, how long they've been around, what they know, and if they have corporate experience and military experience, all of those things come into question and come into play. Wow, what a great example of how to be an effective mentor and what some of those are characteristics. So if you would summarize, just what are the top three characteristics? And again, we said it's very specific. Mm -hmm. There's no one way to be. It's not a cookie cutter mold. It's going to depend on what that mentee is seeking out and what their hopes and aspirations are. And then also what your strengths are as far Mm -hmm. as that mentor. But what are some just basic three characteristics as far as a helpful or successful mentor, what they could have? Number one, I think you always have to be willing to learn, always learning and and seeking knowledge. I think it never stops. And so as you continue to grow and learn and continue to research, it makes you a better resource. So the learning never stops. I think if I had to prioritize, I'd say that that's probably the most important thing. Secondly, to not believe your own hype. So what do I mean by that? Well, we're only as good as we are, not necessarily as good as we think we are. And so, you know, when you are limited or you have limited knowledge or expertise in a certain area, you have to have enough humility to admit it and maybe connect your the person that you're working with with someone who has more expertise than you. And I think that that's critical. No one expects that you're going to know it all and you shouldn't pretend that you do. So that's probably, that might be number one, but I mean, (laughs) that 
would be the second one. And then third, I think that you just have to be honest about whether or not you have a, a servant leadership mindset, that you are really in it for the betterment of someone else or the organization or the community or society as a whole. You can't be in it for yourself and give everything that you need to give to someone else. And so I think, you know, just having an honest conversation about where your heart is, is important. And I think if all of those things are aligned, then you'd make a great mentor to whoever is seeking out mentorship. What great advice. And and I particularly appreciate that third point, you know, making sure you're not doing this just to add something on your CV or, um, Mm -hmm. you know, for your benefit as well. Yes, yes. And something I'm finding, which is surprising to me because I feel like it was just yesterday I was going to Bullock and now I'm having junior psychologists come to me and ask me for advice, ask me for mentorship on how to navigate your career and and different things like that. And and I definitely find myself saying, how did I get in this position? How did, how did this happen? And so it's it's just a really neat kind of cycle to see the people who have poured into my life and then me being able to pour that into others. Yes, yes. As, but, as they're seeking it. Yeah, I would also say you have to be mindful about what you have to give too, you know, it, in terms of not wearing yourself too thin because we can also, you can be to the extreme of having a servant heart and you want to help everybody and you want to be available and you want to be a resource. And that's not realistic either. You have to be careful about uh, you know, over committing yourself as a mentor and really putting yourself in the position of not necessarily reserving yourself for the ones who are really seeking mentorship, but making sure that you are regulating, let's say, how much you share and when you share it and with who. And what I mean by that specifically is there are a lot of people who want to get ahead and they want to be successful, but their hearts are not in the right place, (laughs) that they're not willing to be able to put themselves in a position to help anyone else. And so you really have to be able to distinguish between whether or not you're helping someone be successful just for the sake of being successful or whether or not you're actually helping and doing something for the greater good overall. And so how do you determine that? Well, it is really based on the nature of the relationship, the conversations that you have. And I would just encourage people to, you know, really spend extra time developing the people who want to develop other people, because that's really the richness and the value of having a good mentorship line. Or, you know, as I said, that that leadership pipeline, that's how you establish it. Being a mentor, mentoring someone who will become a mentor themselves and will then emulate exactly what you did or similar a similar style. I think sometimes people consider mentorship as the process of making many versions of yourself. And that's not what it is. <laughs> we are not, we could never be successful at making many versions of ourselves, but we are, we can be successful at, at helping someone become the best version of their, their own self. And that's what it should be about. So now on the flip side of that question, if there's a junior officer or a junior psychologist or just someone who's up and coming and they're in a mentor relationship, what would be some concerning character traits of a mentor? 
Because as you mentioned that, hey, I'm trying to make you into my mold versus what are your goals and aspirations? Yeah, that's a big one. That's a big one there. And there are a lot of them out there. (laughs) So if the person is not listening to you and, you know, that's a huge red flag right off the bat, they should be willing to listen to you, to hear you out. They should ask about your thoughts and ideas and they should ask, you know, it it should be a a constant process of asking to learn more. You know, that positive inquiry is so important. And if they're not asking any questions and they're doing all the talking, then that's probably another indicator that that may not be the right person to have as a mentor. Now, don't get me wrong. As a retired army nurse, army nurses love to talk. Um, A lot of us old folks out here love to talk and and we'll talk and talk and talk and talk. But if we're not giving you anything of value, then that, you know, you have to be able to distinguish between what's good and what's good for me. And so just be mindful of that. So that's one. They need to be willing to listen and not just talk. Another is their track record. When you run into people who have good mentors you know, ask them and talk to them about some of the characteristics of the mentors that they have. And so I would say when people are successful and you get into that conversation, you know, to really learn about what made that relationship successful, what made the mentor a good mentor for them so that you can start to create and compile all those characteristics for what you're looking for and seeking in a mentor. Because I can tell you that there are a lot of people out there willing to give advice, but it may not all be good. So yes, looking at other people and their examples and asking those questions and not being afraid to seek out the mentor that's mentoring someone else. It may be that, hey, if you're helping them be successful, would you be willing to work with me? And more often than not, the answer is yes, but it has to be, you know, it all comes back to why you're seeking a mentor in the first place. Um, What is your motivation for doing it? I think. And then, of course, you know, it has to be a good fit. You don't want to force the fit. If there's anything that seems off, you know, that just doesn't sit right, or it seems like you're doing, you're having to force interaction, or you're the one that's making all of the connection, and you're the one that is kind of dragging the information out of the mentor, then it should not be that way. It should really be, like I said, mutual commitment. And it's a mutual engagement and agreement as to how the two of you can talk about and move you forward in what you're trying to do. And a mentor should always be willing to learn, which goes back to what I said about the mentor characteristics. So I think those are just some things that come to mind. But yeah, we also have heard about people who have been bad mentors. And of course, obviously steer clear of those people. So anyone that's maybe talking down to you, like you said, not listening, Mm -hmm. not being willing to address some of your concerns or your professional aspirations, somebody that's trying to put you into a mold, those are probably not the best folks to get connected with. (laughs) I would say no. And, And we talked about it a little bit in terms of the delicate relationship between male, female mentorship relationships. And, you know, you also have to be aware of someone who's trying to take advantage of a relationship in that way. That's also a red flag that, you know, a lot of people will say, oh, yeah, sure, I'll be a mentor to you. And it is for their own personal gain in whatever way that they may try to use that. So you also have to be aware of that. Is this person really trying to help me be the best version of myself and to accomplish my goals? Or are they just trying to get something from me? Mentorship is not transactional. 
And so I think it is important to note that and distinguish that. A mentor should not ask you for anything. They shouldn't ask you for money. They shouldn't ask you for anything that was not agreed upon initially, but it is not transactional in that way. And I I think that's important. That is a great point to really highlight especially like you said, with that male-female relationship, a mentor mm-hmm. should not be asking you to come over to their house you know, at 8.30, no. 9.30 at night on a Saturday <laughs> evening for drinks. That's not appropriate, right? Correct, um, correct. And, and we can joke and say it kind of tongue-in-cheek, but there are genuinely you know, women and men who have never had that mentoring relationship who don't know what that context would look like or, or what would be acceptable or not. And like yes. you said, in the, in the military, we have this family type of atmosphere where we want to help people and build people up. That's the general consensus. Mm-hmm. And so when there's that person taking that interest in you and you have the understanding as the mentee that this is a mentoring relationship and you're following that mentor's lead, and that mentor does not have your best interest in mind, and like you said, is looking to gain something in a transactional relationship and almost like a quid pro quo, we'll all help you out here. Mm -hmm. And then we're crossing over into that sharp realm. Yes, And that's challenging because oftentimes people will question that. So Mm -hmm. thinking about those appropriate places to meet Mm -hmm. and have mentoring sessions, whether that's over the phone, in a public place, making sure it's someplace that is not making one person or the other feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And again, at the beginning and the onset, setting those clear boundaries. What are your expectations? Where do you feel comfortable meeting? Yes. How long should we be meeting for? What Mm -hmm. is your expectation, right? Because you shouldn't also have marathon sessions. It's not a therapy session. It's not... being specific about what topics are being covered because oftentimes that's what it can sometimes morph into is one person or the other, either the mentor or the mentee, viewing it as a therapy session, viewing it as a rent a friend or something like that, where this is a professional mentoring relationship. And what does Mm -hmm. that look like? Let's discuss that beforehand. There's no no unmet expectations or confusion on expectations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think traditionally we've thought of mentorship relationships as someone who, you know, has been there, done that, and they, they are then kind of laying out a pathway before you. And that really is in a traditional sense what mentoring is, but mentorship really should be a process by which the mentor is helping the mentee become more self-reliant. It's a process by which you're developing their leadership skills. So in effect, it may start out with a great deal of meeting and talking and sharing, but it should trail off so that over time they need you less. And if that's not happening, then that's another indicator that maybe you need another mentor because that should be happening. There should be this gradual release of, hey, you know, you have now become the master. It's like... (laughs) You, you know more than I know, and you have, you've exceeded or exhausted what I could give you. And a good mentor will admit that and not hold you back. And so, you know, really being able to determine when you've reached a point that you've outgrown that mentor is also important. And like I said, it should be that you are gradually building your own self-reliance and that the goal is not to, for you to become a smaller version or a younger version or a stronger version of the mentor. So I wanted to get that in there too. No, that's great, right? <laughs> that's not creating minions of yourself is important. No, no. <laughs> 
Definitely important. So I do want to say that the reason why it's so important for women to have mentors, especially in scenarios where I mentioned, of course, that I had men or male mentors, it's so important because women need the opportunity to be able to practice before they play. And what I mean by that is our corporations, our organizations are constructed such that when you are at the table, you're expected to be able to perform. And we often don't have the opportunity to test things out, whether it's ideas or public speaking or how we're presenting, what we're presenting. We don't have opportunities to do that with someone who's going to give us honest and sometimes difficult feedback. And so having a mentor really allows that woman a safe environment to be able to do all those things, to make the mistakes, to say the wrong thing, to, you know, and to play it out before they get into a position or are required to perform at a level that they have not yet had a lot of practice. And so it's interesting because even as young as grade school, We encourage young boys to have confidence, to jump up, to speak up, to say whatever they're thinking, and it is rewarded. And for young girls, we teach them to follow the rules, to raise your hands, and to speak up when you have the right answer. And so what happens is that the guys are just going on and on, and they're just talking all the time, and they're (laughs) over-talking. And there's no one really checking them or holding them accountable to it. And the girls just don't get a lot of practice. And, you know, I don't want to make it really male, female, but I think it's a necessary distinction to make as it relates to this and and really the value of mentorship. The other thing I want to clarify is that, you know, you and I have spoken about traditional roles, certainly, you know, man and woman and husband, wife and wives being, you know, responsible for families and children. But of course, in, you know, in the day and time that we're in, you know, your construct may be different. It, it could be wife and wife. It could be, you know, whoever your partner is. And there may not be children. That doesn't mean that you don't have the same challenges and that you, you know, somehow have a different trajectory because of, you know, who you are or your lifestyle or how you're choosing to move forward in your career. And I say that to say that, you know, there were a number of women in my career who did not choose traditional lifestyles and they had no fewer challenges than the rest of us. And I think it's an important point to make. I just didn't want to miss an opportunity to say that as well. No, that is a great point to highlight because that pressure from society for women. Well, when are you going to have children? Well, I I don't think that's really in the cards for me. What? Why not? You're going to miss out. Who's going to take care of you when you're older? And and all of these questions of having to explain their reasons versus Mm -hmm. this is my personal choice. Yes, Um, And and that extra layer of thinking about we're not that far removed from don't ask, don't tell in the military. And so that extra layer of anxiety and stress that LGBTQ service members have experienced Mm -hmm. in their life and continue to experience because of the level of scrutiny that has historically been put on them in their service in the military. Yes. Um, And so thinking about all those layers, right, Mm -hmm. of stresses Mm -hmm. that we face as leaders in the military and understanding those perspectives is so important. So thank you for highlighting that for our listeners. Yes. Yes. 
Wendy, it's been a pleasure. I feel like I could go on and on and talk to you for hours. You just have such a great perspective. And I just so appreciate your heart for being willing to share your experiences and to help our listeners, you know, in any way that they feel that this is helpful for them. I know for me, it's been a tremendous blessing just to listen to your words of wisdom and encouragement. So thank you for sharing your talents and your expertise with our audience. Oh, wow. Well, thank you. Thank you. You know, you asked me some specific questions and I gave you some some general answers in some instances. But I can tell you that even after transitioning out of the military and my current role, so I, I sit on different boards. It's an interesting place to be. The makeup and the construct on the board of directors is it follows what it does traditionally in, in most of our organizations. And so it is an interesting area to navigate. But I mentor women in two different programs. And one program is for women who are up and coming leaders who, you know, it, they are in the workforce and they're just getting started. And it's called Women on the Way. The other program, WOW, the other program is actually called WOWM as well, and it's Women of Worth. And those women are women who are not up and coming. They may be trying to re-enter the workforce after being fired or having been in prison or having a drug problem or addiction. And so they are trying to learn how to be, again, the better version of themselves. And so Having experiences like that, seeking out opportunities to help people who may not be where you are or even want to be where you are, but there may be something of value that you can impart to them personally. It's just another way of looking at it and offering your skills and talents. So yeah, I did. I'm like, huh, am I? Yes, I'm a mentor. (laughs) I actually do it. (laughs) I have no doubt about that. And so now I'm going to add a little snippet for our audio folks who can slice and dice. But you mentioned being on boards of several organizations that Mm -hmm. don't necessarily reflect the diversity that we would Mm -hmm. hope for. Have you ever had the experience of the concept of mansplaining? Um, a male having to, you know, explain or interpret or bro-propriation is a term that Dr. David Smith and Dr. Brad Johnson had discussed where a man will actually, a woman will give an idea and share an idea and a way of doing things and it's dismissed. Mm -hmm. But then a man in the room will say the exact same thing and he is given credit and praise and this is the best thing since sliced bread. How amazing to have you in our organization. Um, Have you ever experienced any of that? No. (laughs) Um, And here's why. So yes, I have witnessed it. I see it all the time. And I think it kind of goes back to what I was saying about the importance of women having mentors and having an opportunity to practice. And I think it relates exactly to this in that women often use and take too many words and too much time to say what they're trying to say. And I'm saying that as a woman. And so when that happens, what the point of it or the meat of it gets lost. And it's unfortunate because women often will say, excuse me, they'll say, I'm sorry, or they'll try to come find some other way to insert themselves to make a comment. And then they will add an explanation before they make their point versus jumping in there. And again, the illustration I gave about little boys and how we raised them, but, you know, versus jumping in there and saying what needs to be said 
without considering everyone's feelings and without trying to make sure it's exactly right before it's being said. And so I think in circumstances like that, that's how you get into scenarios where it's a woman says something, it took her five minutes to say it, the guy summarizes or the man summarizes in maybe 30 seconds or to a minute. And all of a sudden it's so clear because he was succinct and it was direct and it was clear. And she took the scenic route. And so it's not that the value is not there. It is really about the translation. And so I have learned and and my experience has lent itself to listening more than I speak at my board meetings. And when I do speak, and so this is a little nugget for you women out there, I write down what I'm going to say before I say it. And I write down answers to questions that are being asked in the event that I get the opportunity to say what I'm going to say so that I can then, once I write it down, I can change it or adjust it so that when I do speak, I'm not wasting words and I'm not wasting time. And so that's something that that I've shared with the people that I've mentored in the past, but I think that's important. And it is about, hey, if you're at the table, you've been invited, you have a seat at the table, you have to be prepared and ready to be there. And so, you know, I tell women, you don't apologize, don't give me all of the other stuff, get to the point. And I think that that would help tremendously. And that is true on one hand. The other hand is that when you have a group of people who, and it's a homogenous group, (laughs) and it's been a certain way for a long time, it takes time to change those norms and it takes time to change the engagement. And so right now, one of the boards that I'm on is 27 people and I'm the only Black woman on that board. And as we share ideas and, and make decisions, I am very attentive to the dynamics. And so, you know, It is interesting, as I said, I've seen it, but I haven't had it happen to me. So I think I am probably successfully navigating it most of the time, but it does happen. It does happen. There are also a lot of microaggressions that women experience in those environments as well, where it may not be overt, but certainly these tiny little things that kind of chip away at really the value that the woman brings in those environments. And you really kind of have to not let it get to you. And having a mentor is a great person that you can go back to and say, hey, what's the best way for me to say this? You know, how, how do I say this differently? Just help me say this in a way that they're going to get it. And I, I think that's probably a lot of value in that. That is a common theme that I've been hearing from women in leadership is developing that thick skin and not oh, yeah. taking everything personally and yeah. being able to sit back and listen more. And it'd be great because we know, wait, it shouldn't be this way. It shouldn't be this way, right? And so I I was talking with someone else and I am channeling my inner Albert Ellis and when he talked about shooting all over yourself, stop it. (laughs) (laughs) And, And if we go in there and kick down the door and demand it change right now, it does, just as you're saying, it takes time to change and it takes time to shift. But yes. being part of that process is so important and being mm-hmm. able to, just like you said, being able to speak clearly, concisely, and succinctly yes. 
is important, an important skill to have. And we like words. I think. We, we <laughs> do. Typically, we do. typically, right? It's not typically. across the board. <laughs> it's not across the board, but typically we do. We like to express, you know, we, we think that if we say it louder or we say it with emphasis, that it has more meaning or that it'll be better received. And that's not true. It, it's not true. It just depends. So what advice would you have, particularly for Black women who struggle to find that balance? Because if if a man said things in a clear, succinct, assertive way, they're seen Mm -hmm. as a successful leader. But if a Black woman says it in that same manner, they're seen as that angry Black woman. Why are you upset? Why are you angry and not approachable? What Mm -hmm. advice would you have for those women? Own your stuff. I mean, you know, (laughs) I have been called the angry black woman. I've been called a bulldog. I've been called a number of things. And and what I'll say is you have to build your confidence because, and and you said it, it's not personal, right? And so you, people will make every attempt to marginalize you and you have to be able to exist above it. And, you know, how do you do that? Well, you have a good network. You surround yourself with people who are going to deposit positivity and that are going to build you up and to help you move forward versus always putting yourself in situations where it's just you and you feel and act as if it's you against the world. It really isn't. And so having enough self-awareness around that, having enough confidence to be able to face the overt and the covert and to walk away whole, it takes practice. (laughs) Um, It takes getting in there and doing it. And maybe you get scratched up and maybe you get a little bit hurt, but you come back and that's critical. You know, what often happens, not just for women of color, is that we get bruised, we get scraped up, it damages us and we go away forever. We start to make decisions or we question, you know, people talk about imposter syndrome. We question whether or not we're qualified or, you know, we start to really deconstruct ourselves because we met opposition. And I think the sign of true leadership is that you're able to kind of, you know, roll with the punches, so to speak, but that you're able to take it as opportunities to learn and grow. You know, how can you improve and how can you show up differently? How can you communicate in a way that it is better received? And I can also say that sometimes you're not in the best place. And that might be revealed as well, that the organization that you're in is not necessarily the one that's nurturing you or helping you grow. And you could do everything under the sun to try to recreate yourself and you were not the problem. That is such great advice. Thank you so much for reminding me of that. That is a helpful reminder too. But also our listeners, because oftentimes people can feel alone in their struggles. And so thank you for reminding us that we're not and that it's not always us. It's and... not. It is not. Um, anytime, you know, if, if, even if it's, I know our times are off, but even at 2 a.m., if there's something keeping you up, by all means, send me a text or an email or something because you're not the first one to experience it. And while there may not always be a great explanation in regards to that thing, I think it is important to remain whole. And putting in the effort to make sure that you do. And so, you know, whatever I can do for you to make sure that you are around and available, you're thriving and you are able to mentor the people coming behind you, I'm all in. 
Oh, thank you. I appreciate that <laughs> offer. And so thank you again for spending your time. And for our sure. listeners, we'll have some of those links to the organizations, um, okay. particularly Charm, so that they yes. can get some more information on the research that they provide and really gaining an understanding of the value of diversity in our organizations. And then also, yes. just like you said, some of the mentoring that's important to have and, and the value of diversity in our mentors and in our mentees. So thank you again for your time, Ms. Perry. You have a wonderful night and I look forward to our next conversation. Yeah, so you take care.